Thank you, guys. That is uh, exactly what we're talking about today, our great God. And that was beautiful. Thank you much. Well, earlier this morning, our uh, children's ministry held its annual promotion Sunday. We do that in the spring rather than the fall, and that way the the kids who are moving up to the youth group get to participate in those activities um, during the summer that they do. When Keisha told me that they were having muffins and fruit uh, for the breakfast, I thought maybe it was a senior citizen promotion. You know, bran muffins and apple slices, that kind of thing. But And that concerned me because there's only one place for senior citizens. Us senior citizens be promoted to. And we don't want to go just yet. So, uh, promotion Sunday. Uh, not as traumatic as I thought. You know... Uh, it's a big day, especially for those 8 to 10 fifth graders that are moving up to the youth group. I mean, a, a whole new world is opening up to those guys of a- activities and, and opportunities, especially those that come from boring families. And uh, just kidding. I'm sure there are. If you think I was talking about you, I wasn't. Your family rocks, okay? You know, along with the new privileges and opportunities, though, that these fifth graders who are about to become sixth graders and entering the youth group are going to experience, comes a lot of responsibility. There's a higher level of expectation for their knowledge and behavior because that's the way it is. Maturity brings responsibility. The more we know, the more is expected of us. And this morning, we're going to talk about our responsibility now that we have more knowledge about our great God, our triune God, the Trinity. We're going to be reviewing this morning some of the things that we have learned uh, and also thinking about the responsibility that accompanies our newly acquired knowledge. The more we know about God, the more we are expected to apply what we know and to relate to Him in the ways that He wants us to relate with Him. Hopefully, Uh, Today's message is going to be a little easier on your ribs than last week's message was, especially those of you who were married. You know, I saw you husbands going like this when I was talking about the women and and, uh, men going like this or wives going like that when I was talking about the men. Our text this morning is going to be the first chapter of Hebrews. And while I'll refer to it, we're not going to spend a great deal of time here, although we may revisit it. Uh, in a few weeks because of its connection to the Psalms. Just a little heads up, our next series is going to be entitled Pain, Praise, and Peace. A summer in the Psalms. We're going to look at the Psalms this summer. Uh, Many of us have experienced a great deal of, of pain this past year or two. And we're going to find in the Psalms, we're going to find that God meets us right in the middle of our mess. For this morning, I chose Hebrews 1 for our text as we review some of what we've learned about the Trinity because it points to the awesomeness of our great God, God the Father and His Son, Jesus. Even though the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here, we know from all of Scripture that He was the one who led the author to write these words. And He's also very much involved in in the work of salvation that is expressed at the end of this chapter. And since we're not going to Look at this chapter carefully. I want you to look for some things while we uh, read through this text. 
I want you to look, first of all, for the awesomeness of God the Father or His transcendence, which we'll talk about a little bit. And then the awesomeness of God the Son or His eminence, God's eminence, His nearness to us. God's communication to us through His Word. As the prophet were led, uh, prophets were led by God's Spirit to write. By the way, write down that passage, 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. I'm not going to take the time to look at it this morning, but it is very important to all the things that we're saying. Also, we'll see God's communication to us through His Son. He spoke to us through His Son. We'll, talk, we'll see the deity of Jesus in this passage, or this, this chapter. And Jesus' present glorification, and God's gracious salvation to those who believe. You know, this last three months, I've learned a great deal. Actually, four months, I I believe it is. I've learned a great deal about our triune God, and I knew a lot already. I've been thinking about this for years, This the the, the possibility of preaching about the Trinity for, for two or three years. So I already knew a lot. But I've learned a whole lot more, and I imagine you've learned a great deal more about the Trinity than you think you have. A lot of our knowledge of God builds upon what we already know. And in many cases... The new truths we learn are actually making our understanding of God more precise. And that's important. As your understanding of God has grown this spring, I trust that God has grown not only in your mind, but in your heart. And you see Him as far greater than you ever knew He was even before. Let's read about our great God in Hebrews chapter 1. If you would, please stand as we read God's Word together. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed." But you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those 
who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Well, our Father, we are grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. That you have chosen also to tell us how we are to relate to you. And for those of us who are to inherit salvation through the perfect sacrifice and substitution of your Son, Jesus, for our sins, Father, we give great, we, we give grateful praise. Magnify yourself in our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Have you ever considered your biblical knowledge and understanding to be a burden? Of course not. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Have you ever been talking with a neighbor or a family member or a co-worker? And you hear them say, well, I just don't believe a God of love would send anybody to hell. And you say, but let me show you what Scripture says. Or they say, I just believe that, that God is, is, is one who helps those who help themselves. I believe He expects us to do the best we can, and that's what's going to make the difference in whether we get into heaven or not. And you start to show them, no, Scripture doesn't say that. And they don't listen to you. They just say, well, that's your God. My God's not that way. I just believe God is this way. Hmm. Well, let's think about who God is, who we've learned that He is over these last three or four months, and really who we knew before, but in which our understanding is grown. Our God is three, yet He is one. Not only does Deuteronomy 6, 4 tell us so, but so also does Romans 3, 29 and 30. Not only was the God of the Old Testament, one God, but the God of the New Testament is one God. It would have been much easier for the apostles to believe in three gods. It was a polytheistic day, and it would have been far easier for them to say, yeah, we worship three gods, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're all related, but they're three separate gods. Yet they refused to do so. The early Christians understood that God was one, but they also recognized that Jesus, the Son of God was God Himself. Jesus also made it quite clear, as did the apostles in Acts chapter 5, that the Holy Spirit is God. So, three persons, one substance, one nature. And so when someone asks us, well, don't we all worship the same God? Our response should be, should be sure, as long as we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But when you're talking about God in any other way, then we cannot say that we worship the same God as those who don't believe that Jesus is God. Three, yet one. That was difficult to swallow for the early people, a number of people in the early church who thought deeply about God. You'll recall that it was not until the fourth century that an orthodox position on the Trinity was developed. The reason was there was no need for an orthodox position before that time. But when heresies arose, theologians, men who uh, were leaders in the church, got together and tried to understand what Scripture says so that they could be exactly precise about who God is. And oftentimes they had to use extra-biblical language because a lot, of, a lot of people say the same thing about God, but they mean different things. They use the same verses and they say, look at this verse but they mean something different than you understand Scripture to mean when they're talking about God. 
Heresies develop because theologians wrestle with the difficulty of explaining three in one. And rather than accepting the teaching of Scripture that is beyond our ability to put in, in the nice little package that we want it to be, rather than just trusting God that He is both three and yet one at the same time, these theologians sought to explain how God works. And they ended up with a theology that was based on more, I just think such and such about God, than one based on what God said about Himself in His Word. Two primary heresies in the early church that you may recall. The first heresy was modalism. This was the idea that God exists in all three persons, but since the New Testament is clear that He is one God, He can only be Father, Son, or Spirit one at a time. It has, he has to be one or the other. Primarily, He was the Father in the Old Testament, the Son when He was on earth, and the Spirit in this particular age, since, since the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, this heresy was dismissed fairly early. I mean, because, just think about Jesus at His baptism. Father, Son, and Spirit were all present. Jesus prayed to His Father in the garden. A host of other texts render this heresy untenable. It just doesn't work. Amazingly, though, there are modalists today. Uh, I received a very nasty letter from a, a, a pastor in Mississippi on, when I wrote, preached and wrote about this earlier on the blog. Um, and he responded, a far more dangerous heresy in the early church was a belief that came to be known as Arianism. It was named after Arius, a 3rd and 4th century North African priest who could not accept the notion that Jesus was co-eternal and equal with God the Father, equal in nature with God the Father. He believed that Jesus was created by God and who were created by the Father, and thus was only able to remain sinless by the Father's power. So in other words, if God the Father had not enabled him to remain sinless, then he would have sinned. Arius ended up not being the primary spokesman for this heresy, but his ideas gained a fair amount of support, and thus were named after him, and, and, and it had to be, they had to be addressed. God raised up a theologian named Athanasius, who fought Arianism much in that middle part of the century, from about A.D. 325 on up past halfway through the, the fourth century. And, and then later there were three other men known as the three Cappadocians who helped to, to bring together all of the understanding of the, of the doctrine of the Trinity that we accept today. And in fact, Frankly, we take a lot of this for granted. We are greatly indebted to those men, especially those men of the 4th century who did a lot of heavy work on this particular doctrine. Now, this is just a very quick review. And if you're just getting here for the first or second week or so, then it could be that you're somewhat lost. And let me encourage you to access our website which you, where you can get all the sermons from this series or it'll take you to the to my blog where the written transcripts of these messages are are located. The title of this series has been All of God Exploring the Mystery of the Trinity. You know the the idea of three and one can seem mysterious when you recognize 
all the truth that, that exists in Scripture about God. But the use of the word mystery in the title does not refer to that which is unknowable. There's a difference theologically between a secret and a mystery. A secret is something that we know because God has not revealed it to us. There is much about God we do not know because He's just chosen not to, to tell us about Himself to the extent that He is, to the extent that, that, that is true about Him. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed to us and to our children forever belong to us that we may do all the works of this law. But a mystery in the New Testament is different than a secret. A mystery is something that was previously hidden and has now been revealed. We see this word quite a few times in the, in the New Testament. It's always talking about something that was a mystery in the past, now it's been revealed. Romans sixteen twenty five to 27, a great benediction, says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen indeed. God has told us a great deal more about Himself than He revealed to those saints who lived before the time of Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews was telling us in our text. So can we know God or not? Yes and no. God is both transcendent and imminent. Now, like I say, if you're here for the first time, this is a lot of information coming quickly. If you've been here the whole time, you're saying, why are we going over all this? It's going to make sense in just a few minutes. It's going to all come together in a few minutes while we're reviewing at this level. God is both transcendent and imminent. He is transcendent or far above His creation. He is so awesome and great that we can never fully comprehend who He is. God does not need us to be fulfilled. He doesn't need anything from us. He is self-sufficient. If He had never created the universe, if He had never created man and animals, He would have been fine. He chose to out of His love for us. Not so that He could understand love. There was love that existed already in the Trinity as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And if God didn't choose to reveal Himself to us, we couldn't know anything about Him. But He did choose to reveal Himself to us. In addition to being transcendent, God is also imminent or close at hand. He remains in and interacts with His creation. He's done so in two ways, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, through His Word. And through Jesus. Now, there are other ways that we know that God exists through His creation and conscience. And, but, but primarily, He has revealed Himself to us through His Word and through Jesus. For the first 1800 or so years of the church, most of the history of the church, God's transcendence was emphasized. Now, there was a great deal of talk about Jesus, but people had a respect for God that kept Him high Above us. And in fact, sometimes that became a problem. 
People thought that God was so high above us that, that He set the world in motion and then He just couldn't be bothered with the, with the little meaningless stuff that we deal with day in and day out. So He just sort of created the world and He let it go. That's the danger of emphasizing or overemphasizing God's transcendence. It was the belief of some of our founding fathers, not all of them, but some of our founding fathers believed that God was transcended and He really didn't care too much about what was going on down here, even though they, they used God's name. The last 200 years uh, have seen a shift to an emphasis on God's imminence or His nearness. And we saw that this morning as we sang, and some of you raised your hand to the Lord, to a God who is near and who cares deeply about me and about me, about the intimate details of my life. And you want to raise your hand in praise to Him. Is that wrong? Well, absolutely not. Unless we lose our awe of a holy and majestic God. And I don't think that that's the case for any of you who are raising your hands. In fact, you were thinking that very thing, that I am raising my hand to an awesome and majestic God. It is best to acknowledge and approach God with both His holiness and His accessibility in our hearts and minds. There's a danger in emphasizing either extreme, either God's transcendence or His eminence. Since the church is currently riding the pendulum on the side of God's eminence, we need to think about the, the dangers theologically that accompany this particular side of the ride, this side of center. When God's eminence is emphasized, there is a tendency to focus on experience and for experience to become far more important to us than God's Word. And once again, referring back to Hebrews 1, we're told that God revealed Himself to us initially through His Word and then through Jesus. But since Jesus is not here with us now, we have to rely on God's Word to tell us about Jesus who told us about God, the three in one. Romans 16, the passage that we read a while ago, I don't know if you understood that, but he was saying that there is new writing, not just the Old Testament writing, but there's new writing to tell us about Jesus. People begin to rely on personal experience or personal thoughts about God rather than, than on the truth revealed in Scripture. It's easy to get off course. And sometimes an error in theology just doesn't seem to be that big of a deal, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes there are legitimate differences of opinion about things, things that God has just not shown us quite as clearly as we would like, and so therefore you think this and I think this about the Scripture. And it's not, neither position is in danger of leading anybody into heresy. But oftentimes, a small error will lead to big problems down the road. If I'm supposed to go here and I'm going here just slightly, that's okay in the beginning, but down the road I am way, way off course. Well, I, I hope all of this is, is making sense to you. All, all this leads us to take a few minutes to think about a popular book, a work of fiction by William Young called The Shack. Um, now, i, I got to tell you, I'm going to tell you up front, this book ministered to me in certain ways. It, it did. It ministered to me. 
And if you've read this book with profit, you're probably going to be upset by the time we get through. I, 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 you know what? I do not like when people get upset with me. I, but I can't help it. I have to tell the truth. Although it's a work of fiction, this man, William Young, very much wants to teach us about the Trinity. The main character in the book is a man called uh, named Mackenzie Phillips, whose daughter Missy was abducted on a family camping trip while Mac was trying to rescue his other son, one of his sons who was drowning. They'd been in a canoeing accident. He went out in the water to rescue him, and when he came back, his daughter was gone. They put on this incredible search, and 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 a week or two later, they found his daughter's blood-stained dress up in a shack in the mountains of Oregon, and it was assumed rightly that she had been murdered. Well, as you can imagine, Mac, who is a Christian in this story, struggles with doubts about God's love and care for him and his family. You can understand why he would struggle with that. Three years after his daughter has disappeared, they never found her at this time, but three years later, Mac receives a note in the mail. It says, it's time we have a little talk. Come on back to the shack. Papa. It's signed Papa. Papa is the word that his wife, Nan, uses for God. And so, thinks it's a hoax. What is this deal? I don't know what it's about. But finally he decides to go. And when he arrives at the shack, Mac is met by an African-American woman who represents God the Father. She calls herself Papa. Then there's a Jewish uh, carpenter, Middle Eastern carpenter, who is who is Jewish. This guy naturally represents Jesus. And then there's a mysterious Asian woman who kind of wisps in and out, who represents the Holy Spirit. It's an allegory, and and he's the Trinity is all there. And before, but before Mac ever gets to the shack, William Young wants us to understand. That what we're going to, what we're going to experience at this place when we experience the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is something that God would do today. He's very critical of those who want to confine God to a page or to, to a book, to Scripture. He doesn't, he says God doesn't limit Himself to the pages of Scripture, especially to the interpreters of Scripture like Athanasians and the three Cappadocians and three and and theologically trained pastors around the world today. We understand that God gifts some to be pastor teachers. That they have, because of study, because of gifting, they have an understanding of God's Word that helps the congregation understand about the Word. And Young is saying, not so. I got just as much access to God as you do, and I can know just as much about Him as you do. Of course, in the story, Mac has been to seminary, so he is qualified to make the following statement as he muses about God. In seminary, he had been taught that God had completely stopped any covert communication with moderns, preferring to have them only listen and follow sacred scriptures, properly interpreted, of course. God's voice had been reduced to paper, and even that paper had to be moderated and deciphered by the proper authorities and intellects. It seemed that direct communication with God was something exclusively for the ancients and uncivilized, while educated Westerners' access to God was mediated and controlled by the intelligentsia. 
Nobody wanted God in a box, just in a book. Especially an expensive one bound in leather with gilt edges, or was that gilt edges? By the way, this part of the message was sort of a, a team effort with David and Sean and KJ and all getting uh, in on the this topic. And I was talking with Sean about it and I showed him this uh, uh, particular paragraph and he says, how is this any different than what Dan Brown is saying in the Da Vinci Code, in D Angels and Demons? There were a certain group of people in the ancient church, especially in the 4th century, who came up with an idea about God their particular understanding of Scripture, and everybody else is enslaved to that if they want to be part of the Orthodox Church. Dan Brown takes it, of course, toward Gnosticism. Well, he's got a weird, weird, eclectic mix of Gnosticism, paganism. The Gnostics of, of the 4th century, 3rd and 4th century would have been horrified with Dan Brown's depiction of, of them back then. But, you know, it sells in the 21st century, so it's okay. What William Young is saying is dangerous. He's saying something that is dangerous. This stops just short of expressing contempt for biblical teaching by trained pastors and teachers. Or does it stop short? The result is a fictional book that has very much the feel, well, I just think this about the Trinity. This is what I think. And you say, but Scripture, well, that's just your interpretation of Scripture. Let me tell you, we're going to see, and believe me, I am not able to come anywhere close to, to taking the time to show you, point out all of the things that this guy says that just lead us in a wrong direction. Young uses Scripture in theological terms in the book. But ultimately, he has, cons he has come to specific conclusions about God based on who he wants God to be. It's a classic example of, uh, of man creating God in his own image. Now look, when he talks about love and grace being better than law, it's really great stuff in there. That's what it ministered to my heart. But there are serious errors, to be sure. Some of the things he says are well said. As someone whose heart has been broken so recently, I get why this book ministers to people. When, when Mac gets to the shack, he, he walks and he sees Papa, this, this African-American woman who, is, who represents God, and he starts to turn around, and before he can, she comes and just envelops him. And she says, Mackenzie Allen Phillips! And then she pulls back and grabs him by the shoulders, and she says, Mac, just look at you! I've been, I've been so looking forward to seeing you face to face. It is good to see you. Oh, how I love you! When I read that, I, I got it. I understood why this book ministers to people and how it appeals to those with a broken heart. But you know, when we get emotionally attached to something, something that is false, it's not really big time false, but, but it's definitely wrong. It's tough to be shaken from that understanding of truth. I don't think it is truth. I think it's, it's error. 
And it's easy in that kind of a situation when you get emotionally attached to something said about God for truth to take a, a back seat to feelings, to emotions. First of all, I have a problem with God being represented by a woman of any kind or a man like Morgan Freeman or George Burns. There's just a problem try, for any human being trying to play God the Father. But especially... A woman, since God is always represented as male in Scripture. God is said to have characteristics of a loving, compassionate mother. But He is always presented to us in masculine terms. Second, as appealing as this scene is, it speaks only to God's eminence and says nothing of His transcendence. Remember how we've studied in this series that God the Father... Uh, is seen in visions in, in Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4. And in, in, in both of those places, there is some semblance of a human form, but the, but, but, but the vision dissolves and there is great distance. And there is this holiness and awe that keeps us at, at a distance from God the Father. Thank God and thank goodness for Jesus who shows us God the Father. Well, the last problem I have with this portrayal is that Papa is entirely too familiar for the role of God the Father. As much as you want the word Abba to mean Papa, to mean Daddy, it just doesn't. It's the Aramaic term for Father, and if anything, it's a tad on the formal side, not the familiar side. It's a term of respect. Don't ask me how we got this thing so confused. I mean, just within the last couple of years, I was going to use that in a sermon. I was going to talk to you about Papa, about the Father, about Daddy, our, our Heavenly Father, that we can have that kind of intimate relationship. And something said, I must have been the Holy Spirit, said, you know, you better check that out before you, before you do it. I went to source after source after source and I was stunned. You see what the ESV study Bible says about it? The term Abba is a term of respect for one's father. And that's not the sense that one gets in this book, The Shack. So if you've been using the term Papa for God, all the while he's been standing there with his arms folded saying, Don't call me that. No, not at all. God looks at your heart. He understands that. But with knowledge comes responsibility. It's just like a little child, a little baby, running around in the king's house, in the president's house. Come up to daddy anytime. But as he or she grows, that child begins to treat father with more deference and approaches more with caution. Not out of fear, but just out of respect. Just understanding. And that's the way we need to approach God. The more we understand, the more we recognize His awesome holiness, we need to take that into account when we approach Him. Well, in order to keep from going all day, which I know many of you want me to, I'm sorry. I'm just going to give two more examples of concerns in this book, and then we'll close. There's just so much more to say. And like I said, I could... Take one time and talk about all the good things that he says in the book. That's not my concern that you read those good things and you're blessed. My concern is that you read these erroneous things that can become very big problems. 
Well, for instance, one that I don't have written down. We talked universalism. The idea that everybody's going to be saved is addressed. It's, he doesn't say that, that he believes that, but he doesn't say that he doesn't either. He doesn't say that everybody will be saved, but he doesn't say that they won't be saved either. Well, at the shack, Mac notices that Papa has scars on her wrist. And he says, I, I thought Jesus died on the cross. And she says, when one of us suffers, we all suffer. I was there at the cross. But, Mac protests, what about when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? She said, I did not forsake God. All right, excuse me, I did not forsake Jesus just like I didn't forsake you when Missy was taken. I was at the cross. This is a problem. As we discussed uh, last week, each person of the Trinity has a specific role, and those roles include authority, submission, relationships. Uh, these authority, submission relationships are intentionally blurred in the shack. Actually, mutual submission is the order of the day, even to the point that God has said to submit to us. Bizarre. That's bizarre. I submit to you. Jesus or the Spirit says to Mac at one point. There's one place, one scene where they have, Mac is having breakfast with the Trinity. The persons of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit says to him, Mackenzie, we have no concept of a final authority among us, only unity. It is a circle of relationship, not a chain of command. That's just wrong. It's blatantly wrong, as we have seen clearly throughout the course of this study, in particular in the last two weeks. As for the Father bearing the scars of the cross, think about it. What happened on the cross? Jesus was bearing the sin. He took our sin upon Himself as our substitute to absorb God's wrath against sin. He bore the equivalent of an eternity in hell for those who would believe. That his death was a substitute, a sacrifice in our place. And for that time, he was separated from God the Father in every single way. In order for him to get the same treatment we would have gotten in hell, there's distance, there has to be. God, the best metaphor I know, is God turning his back on the Son. It had to happen for God's righteous, judicial, not emotional wrath, His righteous, judicial wrath to be satisfied. Now, Jesus will bar, bear the scars of eternity, scars of the cross for eternity. I think that's one reason we're going to fall down and worship Him so much. I mean, this will be the only imperfect body in heaven. Our bodies will be perfect. Everything will be perfect about us. And Jesus... Bearing those scars reminds us of what He did for us because our understanding at that time will be like, will be complete. We'll have as much knowledge and understanding as God wants us to and we'll recognize what a sacrifice it was for us. But I can assure you that you will not see scars in the wrist of God the Father. In fact, there is no place in Scripture that indicates we'll ever even be able to understand what God the Father looks like fully. You, you won't know where His wrists are. You may get a, a sense of it, but then it just sort of fades and, 
And we are aware through all eternity of the awesome holiness, the transcendent splendor of the majesty of God the Father and, consequently, of God. Well, one last thing I want to mention about the book. William Young admits that he has nothing to do, in interviews he admits he has nothing to do with the institutionalized church because he's been hurt by the church. Hey, that resonates with a lot of people today. I understand. We, we hurt each other because we're human. And if it happens in the church, we think it ought not to happen there. Uh, everybody else ought to be perfect. Oh, not, I don't have to be, but you know, everybody else should be. In an exchange in, in, in between Jesus and Mac, Jesus says this, I don't create institutions. That's an occupation for those who want to play God. Oh, play on words there. So no, I'm not too big on religion. And not very fond of politics and economics either. And why should I be? They are the man, man-made trinity of terrors that ravage the earth and deceive those I care about. So Young takes a shot at the organized church by saying that Jesus is against it. Doesn't add up with Scripture, though. In Matthew 16, 17, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, in fairness, Young is talking about the local church, not the... When he puts these words in Jesus' mouth, he's talking about the local church, not the, the universal church. But then look at... Well, as we read last week in Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Every time in the epistles that, that the church is addressed, it's talking about that specific local church or the institutionalized churches, as Jung would say. God loves Jesus is the head of not only the universal church, He's the head of every church. And He loves the church. He loves Grace Community Church specifically. He doesn't look down there and say, Grace Community Church. You know, they just do better if they just disband and, and just approach me on a different level. Personal level. That's basically what the man's saying. In this, I've got to stop. And it seems like a, an odd place for me to conclude several months about the Trinity. KJ is going to finish up this series next Sunday. I'm going to be out of town. And KJ will be talking more about the Trinity. But this concludes my thoughts about our awesome God. Our God is awesome, but a lot of people don't want Him to be as awesome as He really is. They want to bring Him down to our level. And they say, well, that makes him more awesome in my eyes because that way I can relate to him and he cares about me. And I, I understand that sentiment. But what God says about himself is what matters, not our sentiments. When we make God in our own image, it really works for us for a while. But, the end is never a good thing because we're imperfect. And so our God ends up being imperfect or at the very least insufficient because He's a God of our own making, not the God who is. And it's important for us to, to know Him 
as much as we can about Him and to interact with Him on His terms. God the Father, the ultimate authority, ultimate authority in the universe, the grand architect of the plan of salvation. Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, perfect substitute, dying in our place and taking all the righteous wrath of God upon Himself. Holy Spirit, author of God's Word, and the primary agent of God at work in the world today. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit. Three in one. Let's pray. Lord, um, we confess that our understanding of you is imperfect. Father, it's not the problem that that we don't know as much about you as we should. You you understand our hearts. You you judge us on the basis of our hearts and on what we know. But Lord, the problem comes when when truth is presented to us and we we say, I I don't like that. I have a different image of God in my mind. Lord, may you, Father, Son, Spirit, Triune God, fill our hearts and minds and in our understanding of you and as our understanding of you grows, Father, we can finally begin to understand just just a portion of the blessings that you have for us. We love you. Commit ourselves afresh and anew to you this day. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.